Morning, everybody. Would you please uh, join me in prayer as we come and ask God to shed light upon the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are the great God who has spoken your living word to us. So help us to hear it carefully, to mark it in our hearts and our minds, and to show that we have learned it in the way that we think and the way we live our lives. To the glory of your name. Amen. Now, I'm sure that you would agree with me that in all the relationships that we find ourselves engaged in, there are certain appropriate and conversely inappropriate ways of talking to one another, right? And what's appropriate or inappropriate is often determined by the relationship structure. Okay, so as a light-hearted example, um, yeah, um, May and I, my wife and I, we have the privilege and the joy of uh, parenting teenage children, right? And some of you are thinking, are you sure that's a privilege and joy? <laughs> it is, it is, yeah. And uh, we sometimes have the occasion of having family dinners, and family dinners are always a nice time where we talk to each other uh, and we try to establish contact and find out how everybody is doing. So there was this one time where my teenage daughter, she was talking to um, my, my wife and I, and then I think she got a little bit overexcited. And at some point she said, hey, bro. And then me and I had to look at her and said, your parents, friends, we are. But your parents, we also are parents to you. Yeah? And uh, I don't think it's appropriate to call parents bro. <laughs> yeah. But uh, after talking to some other people, they said, that, hey, at least your children talk to you, you know, so you should be thankful. You know, whatever they call you, never mind, just accept it. You know? At least they're talking to you, huh? teenage children. To take it in a more serious direction, to turn the question in a more serious direction. Are there inappropriate ways of talking to God? Some of us might actually find what we have been hearing from the Psalms for the past few weeks fairly uncomfortable. We have heard the psalmist cry out to the Lord. Some might even say we have heard the psalmist complain to God. So let me just get up the slides. O oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Psalm 74, 1. How long, O oh Lord, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the foe of your garment and destroy them. Psalm 74, 10 to 11. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Psalm 77, verses 7 to 9. And today, in our psalm, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? So we have indeed heard the psalmist Christ, and some might even say complaints. And really, the technical term for all of the psalmist cries and complaints is what we call lament. So here, I'll provide a definition of lament for us. Okay? And on one hand, it can be taken as a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. Yeah? And on the other hand, it can be taken to mean a complaint. Yeah? So that's what we find in the psalms that we've been looking at, uh, a lament. And we ask, 
are laments appropriate ways of talking to God? Is it right to lament before God in this vexed, angry, and somewhat even aggressive tone? Some church traditions will say no. In such traditions, praise is the only appropriate form of talking to God. And since in their view, lament is opposite to praise, it is therefore not an appropriate way of talking to God. And even if the psalmist here is lamenting before God, it is not something that we should follow. Furthermore, if we read Psalm 79 carefully, we will realize that the psalmist is not only lamenting, he is actually doing something else. He is praying an imprecation upon his enemies. The psalmist is actually praying an imprecatory prayer for God to act against his enemies. Okay? You're probably sitting there and saying, what did you just say, Pastor Edmund? Imprecation? What's that? Okay, so here I call up the definition of that. The imprecatory psalms contained within the book of Psalms of the Hebrew Bible are those that imprecate, meaning they invoke judgment, calamity, or curses upon one's enemies or those that are perceived as the enemies of God. And I think we see that in our passage today in verses 10 and verse 12. Let the avenging of the outpour blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Verse 10. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbours, the taunts which they have taunted you, O Lord. Verse 12. So isn't the psalmist in his prayer wanting to take revenge against his enemies? If so, aren't we commanded by our Lord not to take revenge against our enemies, but to turn the other cheek instead? So not only is the psalmist lamenting before God, he is calling for revenge to be taken on his enemies. He is calling for their blood to be shed. So vindictive. So back to those church traditions that I mentioned earlier, even if the psalmist expresses things this way, that's the psalmist, and that's not supposed to be us. Laments and imprecatory prayers, they conclude, they are certainly not appropriate ways of talking to God. I'll return to this question of whether laments and imprecatory prayers are appropriate ways of talking to God. But first, let's have a closer look at the psalm. And hopefully in going deeper into the psalm, you will feel the raw force of the lament, the imprecatory prayer of the psalmist along with me. I find it helpful to divide the psalm into three sections, with each section titled according to the cry of the psalmist. So the first section. O God... Take a look at us now, verses 1 to 4. That statement, I think, summarizes the first four verses of the psalm. The psalmist, we could say, he is reminding God of what has become of God's inheritance, what has become of his inheritance. You see, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were consistently portrayed as Yahweh's inheritance. And the land... And what stood as the centerpiece of the land was the temple. That was the people's inheritance, in turn promised by God. And here in the first four verses of Psalm 79, the psalmist was essentially saying, Oh God, take a look at us now. Take a look at us now. Take a good look. And I've decided to, to, to try to put it um, 
in, in the words of the famous Phil Collins song. How many of you know Phil Collins? You can put up your hand, but in doing so, you'll be showing and revealing your generation. Okay, the younger generation, they're probably wondering, Phil who? Yeah, he was this very famous singer and he sang this song, Take a Look at... Take a, Take a look at me. Take a look at me now. That's right. Take a look at me now against the odds. Okay, so he sang this song, and I've decided to adapt the words of the chorus uh, in order to portray uh, Psalm 79. Okay? Yep. So take a look at us now. Blood poured out in Jerusalem space. Dead bodies left unburied to remind me of the worship that once took place. Oh, take a look at us now. Thorns flying in our face. Your glory coming back is against the odds, and that's what we've got to face. Take a look at us now. The psalmist here was most likely recalling the horrors of the Babylonian sacking of Jerusalem in 597 BC. The city fell about three months later after the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to the city, and it was a terrible time laid siege to the city, cut off all food supplies, all water supplies, and he basically allowed the inhabitants of the city behind the city walls to starve to death. Okay? And after the city fell, Nebuchadnezzar went on to pillage both Jerusalem and the temple, carrying off all the treasures to Babylon, along with the Israelite king then and his court and other prominent citizens and craftsmen. Historians tell us that around 10,000 of the Jewish population of Judah were deported from the land and dispersed throughout the Babylonian Empire. It was a devastating time for the Israelites in her history. And the short and the forceful cry of the psalmist makes the stakes absolutely clear from the very beginning. God's chosen people had been defiled. God's chosen land has been captured. The place that God chose as the symbol of his special presence has been destroyed. And all these calamities have been brought about by nations who worship other gods. How long, O Lord, will you be angry with us? Verses 5 to 8. In these verses, we find a shift in the focus of the psalmist. The psalmist is still speaking and crying out from the deep pain and agony. But the cries have shifted from reminding God of the state that his people were in to one of questioning and asking, how long, O oh God, were they to be in this state? Notice here that the psalmist does not ask why they were in this state. The psalmist knows very well the answer. How long, O oh Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Verse 5. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Verse 8. The psalmist knows that it is because they, as the people of God, have sinned against God, and therefore they are deserving of the state that they are in. You see, as God's chosen people, the Israelites willingly entered into a covenantal relationship with Yahweh. And what is this covenantal relationship? At its essence, it is simply the people saying to God, we will be your people and you will be our God. And in their relationship, they pledged to follow and obey Yahweh. If not, they will bring upon themselves the terms of punishment that follow from forsaking Yahweh. And sad to say, 
the psalmist generation of Israelites, they all turned away from God. And despite repeated warnings and pleas to return to Yahweh, they refused to do so. They continued to worship other gods. And they even took part in the detestable practices of these pagan worships. And hence, they brought upon themselves the punishment that comes from forsaking their God, whom they were in covenantal relationship with. So the psalmist recognized all this. That's why here in verse 5, he refers to God's jealousy. See, in the Old Testament, the covenant relationship between God and Israel was often likened to a relationship between a husband and a wife. So we see that, for example, in the book Hosea, chapters 1 to 3. So the worship of other gods would have been seen as nothing less than an act of adultery. And God's jealous wrath, verse 5, comes to be a term that describes Yahweh's zeal for his people, right? Yahweh's exclusive love for his people and their relationship with him. It describes how God would respond and what he would do with Israel's adulterous turning to other gods. So the psalmist knew very well that it was his fault. It was his generation's fault. It was because of their sinfulness that all this had come upon them. Yet for the psalmist, this knowledge does nothing to ease the pain of their present suffering. And in that suffering, they cry out, How long, O Lord? The psalmist cries out the longing of the community that God's wrath would pass and his forgiveness come so that the suffering of the present people's circumstances should ease. And the psalmist pleads all of this only on one basis, only on one ground, not their own righteousness, but on God's merciful character. Do not remember our sins or iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us. And in here, the psalmist is appealing to the basic revelation of God's character, his character that is found in the Old Testament scriptures, in Exodus 34, 6-7, which uh, earlier Hui Yen alluded to, right? So the passage there, Exodus 34, 6-7, and Yahweh passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. Here, the psalmist appeals to the only basis that he can. Just as he knows that him and his people have not suddenly changed, they have not suddenly turned overnight, yeah? he knows that God too has not suddenly changed. But God is still that compassionate and merciful God that he fundamentally is. I want to apply this truth to us just for, for a moment. Brothers and sisters, this is a sure ground for our repentance and the daily forgiveness of our sins. It's not that you or I have miraculously changed and stopped sinning once and for all. We know that, right, in our lives as we struggle against sin. And for some of us, our sins have almost blurred to the point of being addictions, that we find ourselves so helpless every day. So it is not that you and I have suddenly 
change and that we stop sinning. That's not the ground for forgiveness from God. But the ground, the only basis that you and I have is that God has not changed and He remains the same merciful and compassionate God that He is. That is the only ground that you and I can plead on. And this mercy and compassion was most fully displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ, coming to die the sacrificial death for us and in our place, who by his blood poured out for us obtains the forgiveness of our sins. Our merciful God knows our needs. He knows what we cannot do by our own strength, and therefore he has done whatever that is needed in order to forgive us. He is our God who has come to save us. He is that merciful and compassionate God. Help us, O God, and release justice upon our enemies. Verses 9 to 13. In these verses, we see yet another shift in the psalmist's cry. Here, the psalmist calls upon God to come and help his people by intervening directly into the grim circumstances that they were in. Deliver us and forgive our sins by somehow or another atoning for our sins. Verse 9. Do this, O God. And the psalmist makes it very clear. Do this for the glory of your name, for your own name's sake. Along with that deliverance, there's something else that the psalmist pleads for God to do. And that is, as mentioned earlier, for God to avenge the Israelites, to avenge himself upon his enemies. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpour blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power, Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbours, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. See, the psalmist is clearly calling upon God to divinely and directly intervene. In fact, more than that, he's actually calling upon God to retaliate. It could be that the psalmist at this point is recalling what God had said earlier in Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice, you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. It could be that the psalmist is recalling this verse, what God had said earlier, and here he is pleading for God to make good his promise, so that Yahweh's true might and character might be seen among the nations, so that Yahweh's name will no longer be mocked by those who worship gods of wood and stone. As how one Bible commentator puts it, this conflict between Israel and the nations is not simply about the survival of Israel, but it really is about Yahweh's own specific divinity, the fact that He alone is God. And the psalmist ends by repeating what he did at the beginning of the psalm. He reminds God of something that God knows, namely that they, the Israelites, are his people, that they are under his shepherding care, that they are his inheritance. And as God publicly acts to vindicate his people, to avenge his people, what follows, the psalmist tells us in the last verse, 
will be the most natural thing. Thanks to Yahweh forever, generation to generation of God's people recounting His praise forever. That's it for the exposition of Psalm 79, relatively short. And I would like to spend the remaining time that I have with us this morning exploring deeper the question that I raised at the beginning of the sermon. That is, our lament and imprecation appropriate ways of talking to God? And the answer is yes, they are. They are appropriate. And in fact, they are honest ways of talking to God. Let's begin with laments first. You see, we find in laments raging questions, pleas upon God to do something. And in some instances, the pleas almost turn into protests against God that he is not doing anything. Some laments are met with hope at the end of the psalm. Others are not. That's what laments are. But one thing is clear. Laments serve as a raw, authentic, realistic portrayal of life under Yahweh. You realise? There's no sugarcoating to it, isn't it? Right? It's not as if the psalmist deliberately sugarcoats life under Yahweh, but he doesn't. Life under God. Instead, we are shown painful moments. We are shown moments of suffering, either personal suffering or suffering of those around us or suffering in the world. And these sufferings are moments where we can't explain why. These sufferings are moments that seem to be met with a divine, eerie silence when we need answers from God the most. And if I were to ask myself and all of us, isn't that the Christian life that you and I experience, where we have these moments? What's interesting is that the laments are said to occupy about two-thirds of the psalms in the Psalter. That's a lot of psalms if you ask me, two-thirds of the psalms. And furthermore, the laments are located as part of the entire collection of the psalms. And uh, scholars have called this entire collection of the psalm the Psalter. Okay? And the main heading of the Psalter is praises. comes from the Hebrew word tahilim. So we ask, how could a collection which includes so many laments be considered praise? Is the Psalter labored wrongly at the end of the day? That, of course, would be our view if we see lament as opposite of praise, contrary to praise. But the opposite of praise is not lament. It is non-praise, right? And you go sitting there this morning saying, duh, you know, you're really testing my intelligence. You know? The opposite of praise is non-praise. Of course not, yeah. But that's true. The opposite of praise is non-praise. It is indifference. The one who laments is still claiming upon a relationship with God, whom he, in the case of the psalmist, is lamenting to. Instead, it is when we stop lamenting that we stop believing. I'll say that again. It is when we stop lamenting that we stop believing. So lament is therefore a proof of the relationship between God 
and the one lamenting. Such is the voice of lament. So lament is not the opposite of praise. I put it before us today. Rather, it is seen as a different form of praise. There is another sense in which lament is a form of praise. You see, when we praise God, what are we praising Him for? We are praising Him not only for the good things that He has done, but also for what He has not yet done, but has promised to do. In other words, we are praising God for who He is, His character. If you and I only praise God for the good things that He has done in our lives, and just now I think uh, Hien was alluding to like when we praise God only when our children get good grades, when I get a promotion, when all in life is smooth sailing for me, that is shallow praise. I'm sorry you have to say it, that is shallow praise. Shallow praise that is directed only to the good things that God has done and not directed towards who He is and how he is like. In lament, when we call upon God to act in a certain way that we know is true of who he is and how he is like, that is true praise. That is really acknowledging God for who he truly is. So lament, in that sense, is not our final prayer. It is instead our prayer in the meantime our agonizing, heartfelt prayer for God to act according to who He is in situations where we precisely need Him to be who He is. And in that prayer lies hope. Hope that indeed God will one day act according to who He is. And whenever we trust and hope in God and who He is, whenever we do that, Therein lies praise. That's lament. What about imprecation? Our imprecatory prayers an appropriate way of talking to God. Aren't we in our imprecatory prayers asking God to do nasty things to other people? Aren't they vengeful, vindictive, and hence inappropriate for God's people? Well, scholars and biblical commenters have addressed this question before. And one such attempt is by David Firth in his book on the imprecatory Psalms, and he titled his book as Surrendering Retribution in the Psalms. I just want to say that his title is spot on for what the imprecatory prayers are about. Surrendering retribution to God is precisely what happens in the imprecatory prayers. Rather than encouraging God's people themselves to seek vengeance against the Babylonians or the mocking nations, the psalmist encourages the people of God to offer these offences, to offer their anger over to God in prayer. What we are doing in saying the imprecatory prayers is that we are actually leaving the act of retribution in God's hands rather than taking it in our own hands. And in doing so, such prayers break cycles of violence by being a substitute for a violent response to violence. Imprecatory prayers also treat social injustice and exploitation seriously. They recognize at their core that such injustice and oppression is an offense against God's created order and therefore deserves to be laid before Him in prayer. It is to say to God, your world was never meant to be like this. Oh God, do something. 
do something to set things right. You see, too often, Christians, myself included, we simply shrug our shoulders or we wring our hands in the face of oppression. We may feel a tug or two in our heartstrings, but that's about it, isn't it? We tell ourselves, who am I? We're powerless to do anything to stop it. This is just the fallen world that we live in. And then we move on. I think this point was brought across to me in the most powerful way in the 2004 film, Hotel Rwanda. I wonder if any of you have watched that before. So there was this scene where the, um, it was one, one, one ethnic group um, in Rwanda attacking another ethnic group. Uh, it was the Hutus who were attacking the Tutsis. Yeah? And uh, they were massacring the, the Tutsis. And there was this scene where um, the, the, the reporters had filmed down a shot of uh, um, the, the, the Hutus attacking the Tutsis. Okay? And, and, and the hotel manager comes in and he, and he sees the reporters gathered there and he says, you've got to take this, you've got to take this, you've got to broadcast it to the whole world so that the whole world knows what is going on, the injustice, and they can come to help us. And the reporter looks at the manager, the hotel manager, and says, really? Even if we play this, will they come to help us? People will simply stop eating their dinners, say, oh no, that's terrible and then carry on eating their dinners. I don't know whether, have we become desensitized to all this? Have we told ourselves that this is just the world that we live in? We can't do anything to stop it. Imprecatory prayers prevent us from getting too used to such a feeling. They challenge our ambivalence towards injustice. They get us to wrestle deep with the way that this world has gone wrong. We struggle with the honest assessment of reality in the light of God's design. We cry out in agony to God. We say, God, please do something. And finally, we give these matters over to God. As someone once stated, imprecations affirm God by surrendering the last word to God. They give to God not only their lament about their desperate situation, but also the right to judge the originators of that situation. They leave everything in God's hands, even feelings of hatred and aggression. Lament and imprecation, that's what we find among God's people in Psalm 79. That's not the first occasion, neither will it be the last. But that's what we will continue to find again and again among God's people in the church throughout the course of time and history. In certain regions around the world today where the people of God are heavily persecuted and where there seems to be no immediate end and solution to their suffering, that's where we will find lamenting cries and imprecatory prayers. And that's where those cries and prayers will join the cries of those souls in Revelation 6, those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they borne. Where we'll hear them cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? A cry whose final answer and ultimate resolution will be found only in the full coming of the one who says, Behold, I am making all things new. Till then, 
Laments and imprecatory prayers are an appropriate and honest way of talking to God. And in full agreement with these two scholars, Tucker Jr. and Grant, I just want to show, share this with us. Honest prayer consisting of laments and imprecatory prayers to God in community shapes the way we think of God and the way we view the reality of our present experience. Such prayer may sound forceful and in some sense inappropriate, but if, as communities of God's people, we cannot be honest with God in prayer, our experience of life with Him is poorer as a result. I like that last line. If, as communities of God's people, we cannot be honest with God in our prayer, our experience of life with Him is poorer as a result. So God allows the laments. God allows the imprecatory prayers. He welcomes them because as a father relating to his children, he welcomes us to be honest before him. Let us pray. I would like to give us a moment of silence as we pray in our hearts. And we can pray and we can bring before God our own laments, our own imprecatory prayers, as perhaps we see our own suffering, the suffering of others, or the suffering of the world. Let's just take this moment just to lift up our prayers before our God, who hears these prayers and welcomes them. O oh God, take a look at us now. How long, O oh Lord, will you be angry with us? Help us, O oh God, and release justice upon our enemies. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that indeed these are the words found in Scripture, that we can say to these words, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. That indeed that, that you have allowed such words to be your words to us, that you accept, lament, that you accept imprecatory press as honest and appropriate ways of talking to you. So we pray, O oh Lord, that indeed even as we lament over our circumstances or over the circumstances of your people in various parts of the world, even as we cry out the imprecatory press and pray that your justice be established, we pray that as we do that, that indeed faith, trust and hope will arise. And where faith, trust, and hope arises, therein we find praise to you, the one truly deserving of all that praise. We thank you 
and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.